Welcome to today's episode of the Virtual Coffee Break with the MSU Extension Dairy Team. My name is Martin Mangual, Dairy Educator with MSU Extension. In today's episode, Senior Extension Educator Phil Durst will interview Dr. Kelly Sporer about BLV. They will talk about what do we know about this disease, how does it impact the herd, and how can we manage it to improve the prevalence in our herds. Phil, take it away. Good afternoon, this is Phil Durst, and I want to talk today about bovine leukemia virus and the importance of that disease in dairy cattle. Now, this is a topic that's been increasingly important for several reasons. First of all, it impacts the immunity of animals, and immunity is getting a lot of attention because that's how animals stay healthy, is by having a healthy immune system. Also, it affects the longevity of animals, and longevity, we know, is important for the profitability of a herd. Health is an animal well-being issue, so therefore it's important, and all these things go together to affect the consumer confidence in the product that we produce. Today, we have with us a prime researcher in the field, the BLV field, Dr. Kelly Spore. She's a research scientist with Central Star Cooperative, and Kelly's been part of the research hub that started at Michigan State University and continues to do world-leading work in this field. Welcome, Kelly. Thanks very much, Phil. Uh, I can start out by just giving a little bit of a brief history and description of what BLV is and what we know about it. We know that BLV was first characterized in the 1970s, and then we had about 10% of the cows in the United States were infected. Um, because there are really rarely outward symptoms, of dairy producers in the U.S. decided to ignore the problem for decades, and uh, likely we also were unwittingly genetically selecting for susceptibility to the disease, which brings us to today's rates um, it's estimated that in the United States, 89 to 95% of herds have at least one infected cow. And in Michigan, about 87% of herds have at least one infected cow and approximately 45% of cows in the United States are infected. There is no cure, treatment, or available vaccine for BLV. And essentially what the virus does is it hijacks white blood cells in the cow and takes over them and incorporates its own DNA into the cow DNA. We know that BLV has an effect on dairy cow production as well as longevity. On a herd-wide basis, we see that herds with higher levels of BLV have a lower rolling herd average as well as are more likely to have younger cows because the older cows are getting culled or are working their way out of the herd at a rate that is higher than herds with a lower BLV prevalence. Um, in addition, we know that BLV infection has effects on the immune function of cows. In about 30 to 40 percent of cows, an abnormal elevation in a special type of white blood cell called uh, B lymphocytes will occur. And so the cows will have an abnormally high number of B cells, as well as disproportionate numbers of other types of white blood cells, which makes it more difficult for all of those bits and pieces of the immune system to work together to fight infectious diseases. Um, we know that when we boost cattle with a Bovashield vaccine or 
um, introduce a new antigen that they've never seen before, BLV positive cows will not respond um, to the same level as BLV negative cows. So essentially their immune system is not um, responding well to vaccination, which leads us to believe that even when we're vaccinating these cows, they are not um, adequately protected against the diseases for which we are vaccinating them. So Kelly, all those things that you've talked about are really impacts of even subclinical disease in these cows. Correct. Most of these effects are happening inside the cow's body. A farmer may have no idea that she is even sick, other than there is some evidence that shows that in BLV positive cows may be more likely to contract other infectious diseases such as Yoni's disease or infectious mastitis. Um, in about 5% of BLV positive cows, they will actually develop uh, lymphoma or tumors that can cause the death of the cow, or if she is called and goes to slaughter, her carcass will be condemned by USDA inspectors. There is literature out there um, done by some very good researchers trying to estimate the impact of BLV on the dairy industry as far as the economics and likely we're vastly underestimating it because it is so subclinical and it's kind of flying under the radar and having these effects that are not clear cut and are all confounding with each other. Okay, Kelly, so you've told us all these negative impacts from subclinical BLV in a cow and in fact also the negative impact of clinical, uh, which is only in a small percentage of the cows, 5%, I think you said, that is important. And yet you also told us that it's not curable and there's no vaccine for it. So the only thing that farmers can do then is prevent it. And so that's where it's really important to look at the transmission and how to reduce the risk with management. And by the way, I think it's important to, to remember that what we're trying to do is reduce the risk because we cannot eliminate risk. There's always going to be risks that we cannot eliminate, but we can reduce risk. It's not a a, a recipe that, that results in a certain answer because in fact even when we reduce these risks there's been variation in how farms perform as far as BLV and I think that's important to note but as Kelly said the virus itself infects the white blood cells and so any transmission of blood between animals becomes an important way that the disease is transmitted into a, into a new animal and, and that's why what we talk about is anything that contacts blood of an animal should not be used directly with another animal. And so we, we look at needle use. And anytime that we inject an animal with something and, and put a needle into that animal, we can take that needle and put it into another animal and transmit blood potentially from one animal to the next animal, and therefore the virus itself, the white blood cells. Now that, that practice is mostly a farmer practice. That is that, that Injections are typically given by, by the farm staff, whether it's the owner or the employees, they have control over, over uh, injections. But another area is that is the use of, of exam sleeves. When we examine an animal and do a transrectal examination using a sleeve, the research has shown that we break blood vessels going in or out of that animal that can leave microscopic blood on the sleeve itself. Well, if we do that from animal to animal to animal to animal with the same sleeve, we can transmit blood from one animal to the next animal and therefore the virus. Now this is something that others have a, a role in. Uh, 
Uh, it may be that you have a breeder come to the farm. Well, I think that, that you have a, a, an option to talk to the breeder about changing sleeves between each animal. Uh, we have a veterinarian that comes to the farm and I think you ought to talk to your veterinarian about changing sleeves between each animal. Sometimes they're, they're a tougher sell on, on doing that uh, because of the efficiencies of just keeping the same sleeve on. But in general, they will, they will listen to you if you say that they have to. But we know that, that, that there's differences of, of perspective on the importance of BLV and the risk of transmission. Other ways that we can reduce transmission include um, any in equipment that we're using. For instance, if we're um, using equipment to dehorn or to, uh, to tattoo or, or anything else that might contact blood, we need to disinfect it. Obviously, uh, fly management is pretty important because those uh, critters can suck blood uh, from one animal and in that process, like a needle, transmit blood to another animal and uh, can transmit the disease that way. So fly management is critical for a number of reasons, but certainly for this reason as well. And then we also know that those white blood cells are in the milk and colostrum that cows give. And when it comes to feeding colostrum from a BLV positive dam, we say that, you know, there's, there's good and bad to that. First of all, nothing replaces quality colostrum from a mother to an offspring. Colostrum replacers are not colostrum. And um, even though they're, they're getting better all the time and they're very good, colostrum has some great advantages. And even though the, the virus can be contained in that colostrum, there's also potentially antibodies from a positive animal in that colostrum that may be helpful in preventing BLV infection. But there are ways that we can disrupt those white blood cells, and that includes by either pasteurizing or by freezing colostrum to preserve it and then thawing it. Because in the process of freeze-thaw, those white blood cells that contain the virus will be disrupted and disturbed and, and, and break, and we can reduce the risk of transmission by that process of freezing and thawing colostrum. Now, whatever we do, it's important to make sure that we're doing good protocols and we're keeping good records. Phil, I really wanted to expand on what you were talking about as far as the breeders and the veterinarians really just keeping good biosecurity. There's two areas that I've observed with my herds that they are having challenges controlling BLV. One is outsourcing heifer growing. Several producers who send heifers away, those heifers are being commingled with heifers from other herds uh, that we may know nothing about their prevalence of BLV and what kind of environment they were born into, as well as heifers getting bred there with protocols that might not be known to the home farm as far as sharing needles and sleeves. Uh, the second risk that I've really seen as we've seen the dairy industry move to fewer but very larger farms is herds buying out other herds and buying in their health problems and buying in a herd that was having a lot of BLV issues that they didn't know until they bought those cows and brought them to the home farm. Yeah, so those are really important points because biosecurity is something that we ought to practice within herd and then obviously protecting from, from things from outside the herd as well too. So excellent point. So what's available as far as diagnostics? How do we know whether an animal is infected or not? And do we really want to know if an animal is infected or do we want to know more about the herd? A strong testing protocol must be part of any BLV control program. And at Central Star, we offer numerous uh, strategies as well as tests. 
So for any herd that just really wants to find out what where they stand, what their BLV prevalence is, they don't know or they've never done anything about it before, um, we developed a really good method for just screening and coming up with an idea. Obviously the best way is to test the whole herd if a producer can afford it. If not, we can get a really good idea by testing only 40 cows and this would be the 10 freshest cows from lactations one, two, three, and four plus. And we can do that with DHI milk that is collected at a regular DHI test. So Kelly, you're telling me that if I have a herd of, of 500 cows, or if I have a herd of, of 1,000 cows, or if I have a herd of 3,000 cows that testing 40 animals will give me a, a good approximation of the prevalence within the herd. Yes, Phil, surprisingly it will. This was published in, I think, 2013 with work that uh, then North Star and MSU collaborated on. So we took herds from Michigan that were, I think, smaller than 50 cows to greater than 3,000 cows. And those herds, we did whole herd tests at numerous different sizes and compared that to the prevalence that we got if we just tested those 40 cows and we found a very strong high correlation. So like I said, obviously the best way is if we could do a whole herd test, find out exactly which cows are positive and start working on those. Um, another affordable way is at each DHI test to test uh, cows as they freshen in so that we have an idea of the prevalence of those and we can just work on the problem gradually um, until we have a status pretty much on most of the herd by testing those fresh cows. Our milk ELISA test actually tests antibodies that are in the cow's blood and therefore milk that are uh, specific to BLV. It's a very cheap, good screening tool. However, we can't really determine how contagious that cow is or how much virus she has in her blood. Central Star worked to develop our own uh, PCR test, which is essentially a DNA test, and I would equate it to um, crime scene DNA tests or parentage DNA tests. It's really looking just for that specific sequence of BLV that we can detect in the cow's blood because the virus incorporated itself into her DNA. And so with our blood PCR test, we can really tell which cows are the most contagious, uh, cows that we call super shedders, which I'm gonna get to in a little bit in more detail. But those are the cows that we really need to work on to remove from the herd um, because they really are the biggest risk to all the herd mates as well as the young stock. So I think that's pretty important, Kelly, because one of the things we know that is if a herd tests cows and, and, and finds that they've got a prevalence rate of 50% or, or some number like that, you, that you can't call all those animals. Uh, that would just be impossible. And in fact, even we can't do much with those animals because at that rate in the herd, it's so important. And we don't know one from the other, which ones are most important. So by being able to determine which ones are the active shedders, we can identify now animals to concentrate on because that focuses the attention on those that are the biggest problem in the herd. Exactly, and I think that's a great time to, to start talking about my field trial and the super shutter work that we've done. In 2015, a previous student at MSU enrolled three herds that were interested in reducing their BLV prevalence. And essentially every six months, we did a whole herd test of the positive um, cows 
that we identified by milk ELISA, we drew a blood sample and ran the PCR test to find which were the highest shedding cows. The super shedders or highest shedding cows were actually um, called or segregated um, until they could be called. And all three herds found a significant and dramatic decrease in their overall uh, herd BLV prevalence over time. Um, when I came onto the project in 2018, I recruited four more herds. And essentially what we have found is even in a herd as big as 1200 cows, there's a relatively small number of cows that are responsible for the vast majority of the viral shedding in that herd. And so what we do is I identify those cows, I list everybody from worst all the way down to cows that may be positive but aren't even shedding any virus. And we just start working off the top of the list. We go cow by cow. I'll sit down at the breakfast table with my producer and we go cow by cow and say, okay, yep, we can get rid of her. No, she's a really valuable cow or no, she's my daughter's 4-H cow. And I say, okay, well then let's take two cows under her on the list. And we start working our way down. And we've found that that has actually been a very successful method is identifying those highest shedding cows without having to call, like you said, if you have 50% prevalence, you can't call half your herd, but we can start working from the top. Yeah, I've been in part of those conversations with you as well, and looking at that list, and it really is extremely valuable to, in determining which of the animals that are the greatest problem. It's something like the, the somatic cell count reports that show the percent of the bulk tank uh, somatic cells that an animal is contributing to, to the somatic cell count. But in this case, it's more of the virus that's being shed by those animals rather than an indicator like the somatic cell count. Exactly. And one of the other strategies that I think has been very successful with producers is I started expressing the super shedder data in viruses per drop of blood. And when I tell producers, hey, your number one cow is shedding 3,000 viruses per drop of blood, they can visualize one needle with 3,000 viruses going into the next cow, and that next cow might be very valuable, or she might be a heifer that is getting bred to sex semen or something like that, and we do not want to infect her with blood from a super shedder cow. And so we, we've learned a lot based on other work that has been done at MSU, where a grad student essentially took blood from super shedder cows and infected young steers with it, and then monitored those by frequently bleeding and testing over time. And this actually taught us a lot about the dynamics of BLV, how fast can it make a negative animal into a positive animal, how much blood or how many viruses does it take. And that work is being published very soon. Um, some of the next work that we're working, that we um, have gotten funded and we'll be working on is looking at heifers and young stock. You know, for a long time, we thought that the problem was mostly in older cows because those cows have had just countless times over the course of their life that they could be infected, countless exposures. However, when I came onto the super shedder trial, we started finding herds that actually had first calf heifers coming in as super shedders, which really surprised us. And so we, we started to realize that we needed to learn a lot more about what was going on in young stock and the dynamics in herds. Are cows giving it to calves? Are calves infected and shedding from a very young age? Uh, when are heifers getting infected? Is it before breeding? Is it during breeding? Uh, do they get infected once they enter the milking herd? There's still a lot that we really don't know. 
I do think it's very herd specific and that there's different things going on in each herd depending on their management. So likely we will have to come up with custom solutions on a herd by herd basis, but that's fine with me because I really enjoy working with each herd and their goals. Kelly, I, I, I'm just reminded of the fact that, that we didn't even test young stock before. I mean, we just assumed that that really the problem began when that, when that first calving took place. And, um, and so we didn't test young stock, but what we saw was that in that first lactation, we had a number of positive animals, a lot of herds. And then the question was, where did they come from? So that young stock study really helps. But like you said, it, it is herd specific because in some cases, we're not seeing young stock infected until they become into, into the lactating herd. In other cases, they are getting infected as, uh, as young animals. Right, I had a herd that was doing that 40 cow herd profile every year, and within one year went from having 0% of first lactation animals to having 40% of first lactation animals positive. And that was basically when we said, wait a minute, we have to find out what's going on with these heifers, and essentially had to start stepping back. And so we tested springers, we tested confirmed pregnant heifers, we took a step back, we tested heifers that were being bred, and then we tested pre-breeding heifers in an effort to really try and figure out in that herd um, when it was happening. So I'm really excited to be working on that project uh, moving forward in the future. It's also obvious that we need, like, like many infectious diseases, we need earlier and better diagnostics. Um, obviously the easiest way to test these cows is with DHI milk, but like, like we've talked about, those cows may have been infected for two years already by that time and we didn't know it and they could have been getting their herd mates infected during that whole time. We have tried to find the virus in milk to be able to develop essentially like a super shatter PCR test like we have in blood. Um, we have not been successful with that so far. We're still looking but obviously it would be optimal if we could tell how infectious a cow was or what her potential was for becoming a super shutter in a milk sample or in some easily identifiable sample. Maybe, maybe it's an ear notching calves when they're getting BVD screened. Um, maybe it's some other sample that is easier to get than to have to go out and bleed every single BLV positive cow. And, and as always, it's better to be predictive than to have to be reactive. And so we are also looking at markers that may predict what a cow's shedding potential is. Uh, you know, I've gotten continued anecdotes from producers that have a cow who is positive and she's rolling right along. She's gotten pregnant right on time every year. She is milking 160 pounds and she just goes down one day and never gets back up and either, um, the vet has come and done an necropsy and she's full of tumors and you would have had no idea. And so what I think we really need to do is figure out what is going on in those cows that causes them to do go downhill so quickly and how can we find out before it happens um, so that we don't have these successful cows that are all of a sudden a down cow that the farmer loses the value of that cow with no warning. Um, one of the other really cool things that has come out of this field trial is finding markers of susceptibility and resistance in cows. So basically, we have hypothesized, and there is evidence in the literature, 
that genetically superior cows are more likely to be super shedders. This makes sense when you think about how heavily we've selected for milk production and potentially selected away for immune traits. Um, but also, specifically, the Holstein population as a whole has become very inbred. Uh, there's less diversity in genes that are important for immune function. And so essentially, these cows are often not as able to mount an immune response to, uh, to different pathogens. And so we have found markers that we have started to associate with cows that are either uh, very susceptible to becoming super shutters and susceptible to advanced disease and cows that are resistant. And so hopefully in the future, um, this can become part of a breeding selection program or part of a profile that we can select for those resistant cows. That's exciting new areas of research. And I think it'd be really valuable for farmers. I mean, obviously, if we're talking about 80 to 90% of herds being infected today, um, this is something that should concern every dairy farmer. Agreed. And yet some of the MSU group's research in the past years has shown that only about 10% of producers surveyed said that they considered BLV to really be an issue or something that they needed to focus their efforts on. And I understand with all the challenges that today's dairy producer is facing that sometimes I feel like we're just throwing another problem at them. But just because we don't want to pay attention to it doesn't mean it's not there and doesn't mean it's not causing issues that are affecting the profitability of our herds. Well, in fact, I guess we could take the where you started from as a proof of that. When we back in the 70s, we were at 10% of the cow population infected, and now we're in the 40% range of the cow population infected because we ignored it. And when we ignore it, it's not going to go away. It's simply going to increase. It's a contagious disease. And I think that, again, the things that we talked about with reducing transmission, those can be done on any farm. And it can be done um, whatever we know or don't know about BLV, because those are simply good biosecurity practices that are beneficial in not just preventing the transmission of this disease, but in any bloodborne disease, of which there are also others. Before we start closing this thing off, is there anything else you want to say? Uh, for any producers that are interested in learning more about BLV or what testing options we have, please feel free to contact uh, Kelly Spore at Central Star, and I would be happy to talk with you and talk about what we can do for you. Well, thanks, Kelly, for being with us today to talk about this important issue. I think it's one that we're going to hear more and more about in the future. First of all, as more research comes out that, that you're working on, but also as, as the impact is more fully understood by farmers. So thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much, Phil. Thanks, Phil and Dr. Spore for today's episode. As we heard today, understanding and implementing practices to manage and control BLV prevalence can definitely have a positive impact in the herd. Join us next week when educator Marian Buza will join us to talk about benchmarking with Dr. Corey Clark. It will be a good one, so please join us then.